Yeah, I would say it's a good thing we both agree you're signed in because we have very little time. We have a lot to get to this week. A lot to get to. All that being said. I hate you. (laughs) Worth it. We're getting so pissed off at my phone that nothing they'll hear. The only thing they're going to close out on this week is just a long rambling of silence. I'm going to leave all of that in at the end. And it's just going like, fucking send the image. (laughs) The fuck is the internet so slow back here? We have to talk about two seminal pieces of science fiction because, man, we are we are living in it. A lot to talk about. Not a lot of not a whole lot of time. So this will be a fun one. <laughs> when the final reel is spun and the credits have been run. You can count on the wisdom Of these two white guys talking film Just two white guys talking film Welcome everybody to TWGTF, or as everybody knows it, from 2001 to 2019. This is Two White Guys Talking Film. I'm of course your host, Ben. And I'm Tyler. Man, I thought of that 2001, 2019 when I was like, fucking nailed it. <laughs> got him, right? Yeah. <laughs> but just don't even try. <laughs> I just got up and did exactly what you said. What's his name? Wilder did when he wrote Ace in the Hole. He just got up and took a walk around the block. <laughs> <laughs> it's only one thing to do at a time like this. Strut. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about in very little time. That's not true. We have a ton of time, actually. We have, we have but, a certain amount of time. Yeah, but we got to get to it. What was your most promising thing this, or excuse me, most captivating thing this week? Oh, oh almost ruined it, didn't I? No, it, promising young woman was not my most captivating thing this week. Sorry, ladies. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> fine, it's a perfectly fine movie. Like I'm not disregarding it in any way. I think I really hurt somebody's feelings with it when I was like, I'm like, it's kind of like she's doing Joker, and they're like, what do you mean? I'm like. The movie's good because she's in it. Like, that's the reason this movie's good. Like, and they were like, no, it's really, I'm like, I'm like, no, there's good things to it, to be sure. But she's the reason they all work. Like, if you're not on board with her as a character, that movie does not work. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of movies. Carrie Mulligan does that incredibly well. Carrie Mulligan gets you on her side in a way that I cannot explain and has one of the worst wigs since Monster. I think she's got an okay wig. It's bizarre. and But it's it works, a, though, is the thing, things. too. It's so bizarre. I liked it. I thought it was, I thought it was good. Oh, it's, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. It's like, it's the people who show up in that movie are so hilarious. I think Alison Brie is one of my favorite little performances of that movie. Ooh, that is... Honestly, Connie Britton should just be fucked with in movies. She's really good at being fucked with. Well, I mean, Connie Britton should be in more movies, but, like, it's yes, true. I agree with you. It's true. Right, I mean, who should play so, sisters? Connie Britton and, oh God, who's the Australian lady? Tony Collette. Yes. Interesting. It's interesting you say that. Have they been in a movie together? No, no, it's it's not that. Because you, my friend, we're going to get to you as the main event for our most captivating thing. You have decided what my most captivating thing was. Because I was really torn. I saw a bunch of stuff that's going to be on the end of the year list, to be sure, this week. Before I got to all that, and I'm not going to talk about that because I'm going to talk about it later. I watched a movie... As we got off the phone last week, called Muriel's Wedding. 
Good movie. Have you ever, fucking yes, A, right, yes. isn't it? Love Mirror's Wedding. Tony Collette is just playing like kind of a zoftic woman, and like you can see that Tony Collette was like, Oh, I can make a go of this. And like kind of like like just lost a bunch of that weight. Like it's insane how good Tony Collette is. It almost doesn't look like Tony Collette. Yeah, I, I think Tony Collette's like one of her first roles. It's the breakout role, um, for sure. Yeah, it's like what kind of like broader to a mainstream audience by mainstream i mean american audience it's a movie that makes me cry every time i watch it very specifically one scene just always always makes me cry scene with the dad no it's actually not it's the scene where she's gets caught constantly trying on wedding dresses and she breaks down and she talks about how she doesn't want to be when she's in a wedding dress she doesn't feel like muriel anymore she feels like someone else and she doesn't want to be stupid lazy fat Muriel Hutsop anymore. And I'm like, that makes me cry. It breaks my heart. Yeah. Every time I watch it. Oh, her friend who just is getting railed out left, right, and center by guys and then eventually goes into a wheelchair and you're like, well, this is unexpected. Like, I didn't know the movie was going to take me here emotionally. It does kind of have like that 90s indie movie thing where it's, it's just kind of like everyone's an interesting, weird character. <laughs> too many cooks in the kitchen is what it's called, but it kind of works for this one. Like the second half of that movie, when she marries the swimmer, you're just like fucking A. Like this movie just took it to another level. Like it's one of the stronger movies I've seen to like debut in front of me. Yeah, it's great. I love Meryl's Wedding. Yeah. Now, that being said, a movie we're going to talk about tonight did debut in front of me tonight, but in a much different way. But what was your most captivating thing? The most captivating thing I saw is a movie that actually takes place a couple of days ago. It takes place on January 17th, 2021. And that is, of course, the great little movie starring Keanu Reeves and Ice Cube. And that is, of course, Johnny Mnemonic. That's a movie? That's a movie. Ice Cube is in Johnny Mnemonic? Johnny Mnemonic, baby, yeah. That might be the most hidden movie fact for me I've ever known. I know Johnny Mnemonic exists. I've seen the cover of Johnny Mnemonic. I've never seen Johnny Mnemonic. But you would assume that they would tell me Ice Cube was in Johnny Mnemonic. For whatever reason, the cover of, I think, the American release of Johnny Mnemonic is just like uh, Keanu Reeves in hot cypress base it's a terrible cover it doesn't tell you anything about it but like yes it's got Takeshi Kitano of Sonatine fame is in it for some Takeshi reason Takeshi Kitano is in this movie yeah yeah who <laughs> fucking like made Yakuza. this good question let me look that is up it really Paul W.S. Anderson by the way I'm getting kind of stoked to do Paul W.S. Anderson <laughs> isn't it such a fun... it's like one of those things where it's like oh that's not stupid and then like you look at like... his oeuvre and you're like I kind of this kind of rocks. Yeah, like you look at you look at Paul W. S. Anderson, and you're like, well, Mortal Kombat's obviously like at least number two. Like, what's going to contend with it? And you kind of want to look at the whole thing. It's directed by Robert Longo, who I think is kind of was like a visual artist. Interesting. So, so is he kind of like what Mad George is to visual effects in some ways? Sort of. He only directed, like, a couple of movies, and I, I think one of the reasons is because Johnny Mnemonic was such a hassle, and there was a, a dispute between him and the people who produced the film, the company who released it, and so it kind of got taken away from him. But it's a very weird little movie. The script was written by the guy who wrote the original uh, short story, William Gibson, who, if you are a cyberpunk fan, that, you know... 
is a very big name. He created cyberpunk in kind of no short terms. So he made the story into a film and it is a fucking weird little movie about a guy who has 500 gigabytes of data in his head. And I'm like, that's not a lot, actually. (laughs) (laughs) That dude is legally, legally not allowed to drive a car. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's. I love science fiction that's like that, where it's like, at the time, you're like, oh, man, that'd be so impressive to be able to store 500 gigabytes of data in your head. And I'm like, my phone stores almost a terabyte. Like, come yeah. on. Or I think it's like actually, like, it's even less impressive. It might be 50 gigabytes, which in the 80s when it was written is like, that's like 700 floppy disks. Like, that's so much data. Like, no oh, way yeah. you could store all of that but like now but, I'm like, but here's the thing do they make it good where it's like and it all happens to be information on other people because that's how you fix it kind of he's like a, he's like a go-between so like they put the information in his head and he has to deliver it and it gets decoded oh uh, on the other see, end. that's see that's an interesting idea if that's the plot of the movie right it's on hulu oh shit i'm watching this on hulu then yeah fuck uh, well we might be looking at a preview of what ben's uh <laughs> I do like I, when we go two for two where I'm just like, man, fuck you and your Seattle documentary. And then like the next week, I'm like, man, that fucking Seattle documentary. Did you all see this? Don't y'all, watch it. You'll hear what Tyler's, Tyler's talking about something really cool. Yeah, he, I was wrong and I'm willing to admit it. No, Johnny Mnemonic sounds fucking dope. You don't need to um, tell it further. I don't want to say too much. I love Johnny Mnemonic because I love like 90s sci-fi kitsch, especially like the net and stuff like that, where it's like, the net talk to anybody the thing is, is like William Gibson knows his shit. So like the movie, some of the technology stuff, I'm like, okay, that's feasible. But like a lot of it is just like, oof. Yeah. <laughs> Did not eat well. It's great. I love it. Well, with all that being said, we can move on to our first movie. And our first movie is a movie from 1968. And it's the film that showed us the future and might have been more on the ball than we could have ever known. Stanley Kubrick's crowning achievement in storytelling through almost nothing but visual and music at long stretches simply astounds at every moment throughout the film. It is, of course, the 1968 sci-fi classic, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Hello, Hal, do you read me? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. 
I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the part against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. I'll go in through the emergency airlock. Without your space helmet, Dave, you're going to find that rather difficult. Hal, I won't argue with you anymore. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Hal? He throw that bone, like mash cut. Oof. I mentioned cut. during the best of the week. <laughs> I mean, shush! Don't don't be mean. He wasn't mean to anyone on this set. Leave him alone. I was not being any not mean, but I'm saying it's a good match cut. You feel the match cut? It's good. Uh, I know what you were doing. You're sniping. Doing anything. Uh, when I was watching this movie. And I told you earlier, I said I was I was introduced to a movie this week. I've seen both of the movies. I didn't know how gorgeous this movie looked till I saw it on that cut. Yeah. That is the most beautiful looking movie maybe ever shot. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm willing to contend that 2001 Space Odyssey is the best movie ever shot. I will say it's one of the best looking movies I've ever seen. I saw it in IMAX. It wasn't on 70 millimeter, but it was from the 70 millimeter. It was like a restored. Yeah, right. Right. No one else in the theater, just me and my girlfriend and my friend JD. Hi, JD. And I'm going to be vulgar here, but it blew my dick off, essentially. Oh, yeah. Um, I was just like, I can't believe this movie looks this good. I, I just was like, and you can't, like, escape it in an IMAX. Like, you just have to, you just have to watch it. It's What nuts. was it? Okay, well, let's go through. There's only, like, four sections, and it's really, really yeah. they're all very simple. We can, I mean, let's just start. The Dawn of Man. Yeah. It's the monkeys, and um, you know, he one of the monkeys. Okay, they're monkeys. They get attacked by a leopard. There's other monkeys that don't like them. One monkey sees alien monolith, becomes smart. <laughs> when the monkeys are fighting, and there's like a bit of water between them, I believe Mark came out and said, "You stay off my side of the goddamn pond, okay?" Get the fuck <laughs> out of here. I was like, "You're not wrong. It's kind of exactly what's happening here." Other monkey doesn't seem to be overstepping the pond. <laughs> My favorite right. is when a leopard comes out of nowhere and eats one of the monkeys. And you're just like, wow, it's, fuck. It's, and man, when they shoot that thing at night, you're just like, Jesus fucking Christ. That might be the most beautiful. Like, and it's just got that dead antelope. Yeah. And oh. it does something you don't see anymore that I think is a, like a lost art of movies. And it's the matte painting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're right. This is the Robinson Crusoe on Mars thing again, isn't it? Yeah, I love matte paintings. I think they are beautiful. 
especially when you see like behind the set like behind the scene photos where like someone took like a picture of the matte painting and you see like oh it's like seven people painted that and it looks gorgeous yeah like it looks real a movie coming up actually has that too yeah no yeah yeah lost art you lo- i love to see it oh man that'd be a good documentary piece on no. matte painting I'm sure that Criterion has a couple where they're just like, here's a here's about some matte paintings. That does sound like something they do. We move on from the monkeys to well, the one of the best cuts in human in the history of film, which oh, yes. is when the monkey, after killing the other monkey with the violent bone orifice, chucks it into the air, and it goes from being a bone while it's flipping into a spaceship. And it's like a match cut where you just like, you feel it and you completely understand what's being conveyed at the same time. It's like perfect. It's like one of the best cuts in movie history. There is just an absolute art and beauty to the way that movie, I don't know, just kind of manages to get over on you. Yeah. Like it's he, nothing really happens in this movie, ladies and gentlemen. Like, I'm sorry to tell you, you're going to look at the runtime and go, it's two and a half hours. Something has to happen. It's like, no, not really. Like, not really. It, like, it stuff also, happens, but like the everything happens. Movie kind of runs the gamut of genre. Like, it's it's a science fiction movie that also has like little bits of like pre like it starts prehistoric and then it like becomes like this like socio-political drama of like people in space like talking to each other and and then it turns into a horror movie and then it becomes like a surrealist piece it's so intricately put together you know what maybe that's how we do it it's not even it's not even the it's the four sections are that it's it's a prehistoric movie into a like socio-political drama what the fuck's going on like the government's just lying to us still right like he nailed that pretty much there's apparently been like a pandemic breakout or like some sort of some sort of yeah you were 19 years too early i think there's like a little like a like a breakout of like some sort of sickness on the moon colony that kind of got leaked cover, to the though. press, right? And they're, like, trying to cover it up, but, like, there's a news story on it. And he's like, I don't like that there's a news story on it either. And there's also something weird happening with a monolith. And the monkeys also saw the monolith. I, I feel like I maybe went over that a little bit too quickly. And no, the no movie... I think you said it. Monkey sees monolith. Monkey gets smart. Monkey beats other monkey to death. Yeah. You could see that as the monolith starting the wheels of human evolution. That's true. You, you know? Ridley Scott would later badly try this in Prometheus. Uh, yes. Ridley Scott would later try a lot of things poorly. You know, I swear to fucking Jesus, if you go after Blade Runner tonight... I'm not going to. That's the I am going alert. to do to you what <laughs> Sean Young does to Leon in that movie. There's a spoiler alert. I'm not going to go after Blade Runner. Yeah, you think so? I don't think he will either. <laughs> Too bad he won't live. <laughs> Let's get back onto it. They're fucking covering shit up. He fucking nailed it. Kubrick's so ahead yeah. of the game. There's also like this weird tension with the Russians still, which I think is incredible. Like, nailed oh. it. Still I, not going to be for the Russians. You know what I'm going to say now? This is our first t-shirt. How old is this movie? From then to now, it's like 50, almost 50. It's almost 60 years old, so like 52. 
this movie could rent a car and it's still relevant today. You're saying that on the last podcast is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. <laughs> and it's true. Like that's how, like that is a good determination of it. It's like, it's over 25 years old. Like it's double 25 years old. And like this movie still has things to say where you're like fucking right. Like fucking nailed it. Yeah. I think this, what this movie has to say about like, how humans would react to there being a alien artifact of just being like, we should just like touch it, right? <laughs> it's like <laughs> the fucking funniest, or like we should go take a picture in front of it, right? Because when that started zinging in their head, like when he pulls out the machine, which don't fucking do that. Yeah. Like Mark was doing something, I was like, okay, you can knock that off anytime. And he looked at me, I'm like, no, no, the movie, it's being like that noise. It goes, oh, I hadn't even noticed. I was like, well, good for you. The monolith isn't going to kill you. In the theaters, like, that is the worst noise I think I've ever heard. <laughs> it's just, oh. like, deafening. Stanley Kubrick's like, I'm going to deafen a generation. And they're like, what was that, Stanley? He's like, nothing. I like this, like, the political machinations of a guy who's, like, constantly being, like, calling his daughter, being like, I'm not going to make it to your birthday. Why? I'm, like, not going to get you the... F- <laughs> I'm not going to get the phone you want. The one knock I have against this movie, and it is a, a pretty big one, is that it's a movie that's, like, foreseeing the future, and it still, like, only sees women as, like, stewardesses and, like, oh, set to, dressing. To be to be sure, but come on. Who is it? Yeah, you know. And I kind of... Mo- motherfucker, I... motherfucker didn't like him. Like, he may have loved the ones that he created and the one he was married to, but motherfucker didn't like him in movies. Obviously. Yeah, motherfucker and, made you know, movies that's... for men. Like, and that's, that's, I'm sorry, like, that's just true. Like, Kubrick is straight up a misogynist in some of his shit. And there's I, nothing and else I agree. I and yeah. I think you have to point it out. <laughs> oh, to be sure. To be sure. But I'm just saying, like, you ain't going to fix him. Like, I'll, I mean, well, to, no, I, I know. It is a problem with the movie. It is a oh, problem yeah. with all of his movies. And every time we do a Kubrick movie, oh, I'm going to point it out. <laughs> is there one in The Killing to point out? Who did you point out? Actually, she's no, good in I the killing. She's, she's good, in the good in the killing. Well, what's her name? You know, it's, it's fucking like fantastic in the killing. Are yeah. we way off base on this Kubrick thing? I haven't watched Lolita in forever. Oh, don't Stephanie. watch Lolita. Stephanie put that on the list. And I was like, okay. <laughs> take, don't do that. <laughs> and she's like, and she goes, why? And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and she's like, no, seriously. Like, do you not like, I'm like, no, it's a really well-made movie. I'm just like, just know you're not going to be happy. Like, I mean, uh, I don't know how better to put this. You should like, definitely also read the book and figure out how that movie kind of bastardized it. <laughs> anyway. He did it twice, didn't he? He did it to Shining and he did it to Lolita. Well, there's a lot of things with... Uh, don't... Uh, God. Oh, man. Uh, justice for Sue Lyon. That's all I gotta say. Oh, it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. It's really bad. It's bad stuff. I don't want to talk about it. All right. So... Listen to the like, Lolita podcast. There's a podcast about Lolita. It's great. You should, people what, should listen to it. What's it called? It's called the Lolita podcast. The Lolita podcast. Oh, I'm gonna look into that. Good. So, let's move on to the next section. It's the horror movie. Yeah. You got the thing that everyone knows about this movie, which is Hal. Yeah. Hal 9000. Thank you for putting boy. respect on his name. He's a little boy. He's is a little he a little boy? I, I mean, I like to call him a boy. <laughs> no he's one's ever given Hal, given Hal an age before. I love that. Like, I'm like, oh, he's a boy. He, I mean, he can't be that old, right? He's like the state-of-the-art tech. They're doing like a fucking news art, like a news thing on him. So I don't think he can. Be, I can't. Don't think he can be that old, right? 
That's true. That's true. So you're just saying he's a rambunctious little scamp. Yeah, he's a mischievous little boy who tries to kill two unknowing space explorers. And does successfully kill the rest of the crew. He gets one of them. He actually gets a bunch of them, because there's like a whole crew with him, right? That's like asleep. Oh, is there? I always thought it was just those two. Well, it cuts to another person's like life monitor. And all the lines go to zero and all go to the flat. So I think there's a whole crew. And you see like a bunch of darker. Oh. You see a bunch of like things to sleep in. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming there's a whole crew and then like two people power around the ship at, at a time. I could see that being the case. I'm not entirely sure. This I'm I, I'm questioning it because I'm not entirely sure if that's what's happening. No, those people died. I'm pretty sure Hal killed them. Um, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Because there's, there's like a person. It shows like another person and it's like flat lines. And I'm like, well, the two people are currently in space. So that would be very weird if there is, you know. And the guy gets in and shuts Hal down, and he finds out there was a mission to go to go past what is it, Jupiter? Because yeah. the monolith has essentially found alien activity on Jupiter's moon, and so they're essentially trying to figure that out, like figure out where it's coming from. The monolith has like contacted them or something, because it's Haywood Floyd who is one of the people who goes to the monolith on the moon, and the monolith starts making that high-powered radio signal that hurts your ears. Uh And then 18 months later, you have the Discovery One who's going to Jupiter. And so there's a mission that's, like, essentially a fake one to send this craft to where the aliens are to make first contact. Does that make sense to everybody? It does. It does. And they get there, and boy, that's a pretty ride. It's a psychedelic groovy time. It is. Quote Stephen King once, I was ahead, and I don't mean I was ahead of people. I mean, I dropped acid. I went to see 2001, and then they hard cut his ass off on that Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments because they were like, no, we're not going to let you really say what you want to say about The Shining. Because you know the next words out of his mouth. But I'll tell you what, that fucker raped my book, and that would have been what came out of his mouth probably. He has said things to that effect. Yeah, pretty much. Like, you're not far off i mean um, he made a whole other ass version of that of that movie for tv that is it's real not bad. good hell hath no fury like a stephen king scorned by kubrick i mean sports fans do not go track that one down no it's not good i've been called a crazy person for this when hal starts singing daisy that's a sad moment right yes because i'm like on the verge of tears when that's happening i think you're supposed to feel bad because i don't think hal is doing it i think the way you're supposed to look at it is somebody programmed hal to do that obviously like hal's mission was different from their mission hal's mission was to go make first contact not the people on the ship yeah and i don't think hal's happy about that and i don't think hal understands I think he's been programmed to not understand human life and not understand the complexes of it so that he can go make first contact, essentially. Yeah, anyway. So he starts singing daisies, and I, I like if you cry every time. You well up like a baby. And then, yeah, you have, you have the, the fucking psychedelic stuff. That psychedelic stuff is amazing. It's so cool. It holds up. 
it, like on that screen, dude, there's a shot where they're going over the moon and I'm just looking at the craters in the moon. I'm like, I'm 90% sure Steve, like Stanley Kubrick went to space. Like fucking prove me wrong. <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean, I mean, around the time he's shooting 2001 space, I see he, he, you know, he does shoot the moon landing. So, you know, maybe he just, you, you know, do you believe that? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> We I just feel space. like I don't I don't know what to tell people. No, no, I I mean I don't know. I don't know if we did. Who knows? I've never been there myself. I, but at the same time it seems like we did. I definitely believe we went to space. Like why would I not believe that? It's so cool. It's so much cooler that we went to the moon <laughs> not going to the moon. Can I give you the Kramer response for the Stanley Kubrick thing? Story like that's got to be true. <laughs> just Stanley Kubrick be like, "Yeah, I shot the moon landing." What does everyone care? I mean, print the legend, I guess. <sighs> yeah. And he shows it to us with these fucking psychedelic colors. And then we get to that room. And it's the dude. It's the... Who's the fucking scientist of Bar- Is Frank Poole? Is that the guy? I think it is. Hold on. Yeah, I believe it's... I believe it's Frank Poole. Played by Gary Lockwood. Hi, it's me, Gary Lockwood. Yeah, Dr. Frank Poole. There is... Like, I'm... Kind of blown away by how no one in this movie became like a leading actor and then i watched the movie and i'm like oh right it's like no one in this movie is really that important and the the important like the no one in this movie is like like in the zeitgeist when you think about this movie like when you think about this movie you think about how you think about the ending you think about you know the room and stuff like that but you don't think about like the people in the movie if that makes sense Mm mm-hmm it does. So anyway, David Bowman, who is the guy in the room, he keeps seeing himself at different points of life, essentially. Holy fuck, is that terrifying. And it's so scary. It's like the scariest idea ever. And so it starts with him getting out of the pod, seeing himself as like an, like an old guy in his suit. And then it's him as the old guy seeing himself like sitting at a table eating food and then he drops a glass, the glass breaks, and then he sees himself as like a dying old man. And then, ladies and gentlemen, he reaches for something, like the monolith at the foot of his bed pops up, and he reaches for it, and then is transformed into a fetus, enclosed in a transparent orb of light, which floats beyond space and time. And that's how the movie ends. <laughs> Guys, normally I'd love to call Tyler a liar. He's not lying. That's exactly how that movie ends. I don't don't know what to tell you. I mean, either get on board with it or just be like, that movie's dumb. Like, I mean, there's no other way. It's great. (laughs) So you think he is the fetus? Yeah. He becomes something that we cannot comprehend. He becomes, he evolves into a different plane of being. Fascinating. Into what is essentially, I think, a god. Or just the next step in evolution. I mean, yeah. Monkey touches the monolith. Monkey figures out the stick. Man touches the monolith. Man becomes, like, transparent orb of light. Yeah, but I mean, who knows what he grows up to be? Like, who knows? Who knows? I think this movie is great. And fucking whips. It's really fantastic. You know who else thought it was great? The Academy. Did they? They did. They nominated it a few big awards, and the biggest one being it won actually for special effects because I mean, fucking duh. It, it's it's such a spe- like for the time. It's special oh. effects. 
still look amazing. Oh, they, it looks incredible. It's the only movie that looks better every time you see it. And somehow even through time, this is Terminator two level. Good. Like Terminator two still looks amazing by today. Yes. Terminator one has moments. Terminator one does too, but Terminator two is like the gold standard for like special effects at that era. And this is the gold standard for special effects. I think in this era, you're right. He gets nominated for best Best director. I don't know any of these movies. Best original screenplay. This is a weak-ass year. Battle of Algiers absolutely whips. I don't know that one, I guess. Zafrelli's Romeo and Juliet is apparently very good. I've heard a, The Lion and Winner is like... I don't know. Catherine Hepburn won Best Picture for it. And uh, fuck off. No, no. No, no. rules. So... No, Catherine Hepburn and Barbara Streisand won Best Actress. Oh, right. It's the year they tied. Yeah. It's the one of those years where it's it's like I guess yeah sixty eight's a weird year it's a transitional year for Hollywood and world cinema in general it was a really protest heavy year that's uh, fair but the Battle of Jeers man if you've never seen that movie fuck I'll look it up what would you pair this with I would pair this with watching two thousand one Space Odyssey from the back forward. So you would watch it just backwards? Just backwards, yeah. No, I would pair it with... Um... That's pretty good, actually. <laughs> Look, it doesn't make any sense, but fuck me if it ain't interesting. I would pair it with... I don't really think... I don't really know what you can pair it with. That doesn't make... Like, doesn't blow it out of the water. So I'll just say... What do you mean that doesn't blow it out of the water? Pair it with Lewis Boonwell's... Huh? What do you mean that doesn't blow it out of the water? That, that 2001 doesn't just, like, completely steal the show. Oh, I've I've got one, but go on. So I would pair it with, uh, this is out of the left field, pair it with uh, Louis Boonwell's stirring, surreal drama, The Exterminating Angel, about people who cannot leave a dinner party. (laughs) What is that movie called? It's called The Exterminating Angel. I am writing that one down. That sounds fascinating. Is it foreign? It is. It's Spanish. I mean, honestly, I would pair it with Tree of Life. You know what? You're not wrong. I think it's a good idea. I think that, although that's like a five-hour, that's a I mean, five-hour night that you're I mean, it's, it's it's a long sit, but at the same time, I have not felt the way I felt about 2001 until I saw Tree of Life. Like, I understand how people felt. Like, there is just a feast for the eyes, like, for two and a half hours. And it's also attempting to say a lot with a little. And I think that's always very intriguing. That is very, very true. Well... Anything else you want to talk about it? It's great. Yeah, it's it's pretty strong. There's not almost a weak moment in it by any stretch. And to be fair, guys, we said it before. We'll say it again. Nothing really happens in this movie. He made a monkey flipping a bone into like a just a poignant political message. I don't know. It's great. Yeah. Motherfucker knows what he's doing. Doesn't like women, but knows what he's doing. <laughs> oh, uh, Yeah. His it's weird too to because like every one of his family is so staunchly defensive of that in the documentary about him that comes yeah. with like all of his movies. They're all like, "No, he was fine around women." Like we don't understand where that comes from. Which is like, I I don't think the lady protests too much. Potentially, yes. That's that's how that saying goes, right? I believe so. Did we get ratings for? Oh yeah, we probably should. It's five. Come on. I mean, yeah, fucking right. And that takes us on to 1982. And we would look at a neo-noir about what it is to be human. Ridley Scott's epic vision 
of the future is held together strong by dynamic as well as of the time cast performances easily the benchmark for what sci-fi could dare to be for its time not unlike 2001 a space odyssey an all-time great question leaves you awestruck as you exit this film it is of course the 1982 film by ridley scott starring harrison ford rutger hauer sean young daryl hannah blade runner Hiya, Dick. Brian. You wouldn't have come if I just asked you to. Sit down, pal. Come on, don't be an asshole, Decker. I've got four skin jobs walking the streets. They jumped a shuttle off world. Killed the crew and passengers. We found the shuttle drifting off the coast two weeks ago, so we know they're around. Embarrassing. No, sir, not embarrassing, because no one's ever going to find out they're down here. Because you're going to spot them and you're going to air them out. I don't work here anymore. Give it to Holden. He's good. I did. He can breathe okay as long as nobody unplugs him. It's not good enough. Not good as you. I need you, Dex. This is a bad one, the worst yet. I need the old Blade Runner. I need your magic. You squid when I come in here, Brian. I'm twice squid now. Stop right where you are. You know the score, pal. You're not cops, you're little people. No choice, huh? No choice, pal. And he's getting the Dean Stockwell treatment, Edward James Olmos, as... Oh, you know what? M.M. at Walsh, too. Fuck. Yeah, I was going to say, you're fucking you're cutting out one of my boys. M.M. at Walsh, that's right. I want to meet what your, like, what your half-star club is. Like, you get four <laughs> spots for the half-star club. Like, and they all have to be old. Like, I'm sorry, that's just how it works. Like, it's just a bunch of wrinkly men sitting around I mean, smoking. Harry Dean Stanton is obviously the president. Obviously. So who's VP, who's treasurer, and who takes the minutes? I think v- I think, I think minutes is definitely MMO Walsh, because I don't think he pops up nearly enough and stuff that I like. I'm tr- okay. I need, I'm tr- I need the old Blade Runner magic. <laughs> I'm trying to think. When he is- says it, you're like, I'm fucking in! He he definitely knows how to sell someone, like he knows how to sell not water to Eskimos, not ice to Eskimos, but like something they don't even something they want even less. <laughs> As of right now, the president of the Half Star Stud Club is Harry Dean Stanton. The minutes is M. Emmett Walsh. <laughs> yeah, I saw M. Emmett Walsh. And I was like, oh fucking a Ray, like that guy's in this movie. <laughs> Who isn't in this movie? A lot of people, but That's we'll true. get to that. It's true. Mussolini is not in this movie. Thank God. Yeah, well, I'm just saying. I'm naming someone who was not. How do you talk about Blade Runner? It's so, it's fucking great. It's based on a book by one of my favorite writers, and it was a book I like a lot called Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep? And I will say I kind of had a breakthrough while watching it this time. I've tried to watch this. I've tried to... Because I really like the book a lot. I've tried to watch this movie, I think, three or four times. 
I can never really get into it. Not for nothing. It's just like a movie where I'm just like, I'm, maybe it's like one part very attached to the book, one part like just like it's too slow and it really bores me. I can, I can never really get a grip on the movie. And I will say that the biggest difference between the book and the movie is that the book's main concern is about how empathy can be weaponized to burn you out and make it so that you don't care about marginalized people in your society. There's like things in the book that don't take place in the movie. Like you have these machines called like an empathy reader where you like essentially put yourself into the position of a person running up a hill and having stones being thrown at them and you feel the stones hit you. The movie doesn't do that because how would you portray that in a movie? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can write that and like, yeah, I can visualize that. But in a movie, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. You're saying they were hampered by being able to kind of portray something that it's like you can see it in your mind's eye, but like they can't project that onto something. I get what you mean. Yeah. And in the movie, the book, it takes from the book, um, the idea of this planet that's been so horribly ravaged by pollution that like animals just don't exist anymore so people become more protective of animals than they are of like other people or people like things which are the centerpiece of this movie androids and in the movie the main person has like a fake sheep that's like a robot sheep that he keeps in his apartment. And the movie kind of like kind of slightly mentions that there's like a robot owl in the void conf test. They mention it's a lot of mentioning about like what would happen to an animal. Like it like briefly touches on it, but the movie is like not about that at all. <laughs> like the movie is kind of like on a different like wavelength well let's start there i think that's a good place to start with the comparisons of where the book is because i've never read the book and that's why i think i like blade runners because i have no knowledge of what do androids dream of electric sheep i've never known why it was called that until now by the way thank you <laughs> the movie kind of makes literal what the ending of this movie is the movie starts with this guy being called into his office to do a performance review and they give him this weird test, and I, one of my favorite deliveries of a line, a tortoise? You know what a turtle is? Yeah, it's the same thing. He, like, has him, like, go through it, and the guy ends up, like, blowing this, like, scent, like this, like, suit away, and, like, you find out, oh, shit, like, there, and they give you a preamble, there are replicants on this planet, there are, like, four replicants escaped off this planet, like, and this Blade Runner need Blade Runner, which is, like, essentially a robot cop, I guess, but he's not a robot, he's a human who retires robots. One could say he's a RoboCop. One could say that, but I'm not going to. Because that's one another could movie. say he's a RoboCop. Yes, one could say that, but I'm not going to because that's a different movie and I'm not going to play to those cheap audiences. It's not who one I am right now. could say he is a robot cop. Not doing this with you. He not is a this. robot cop. Ben, listen to the words I'm saying. I know he what you're doing. I know what I see what you're cop. doing. Don't spoil the ending. We'll get there. He's a cop. That is a robot cop. It's too robot bad he, she won't live. But then again, who does? Another big thing, and I well, you can put this at the end of this, is the, in the book, it's like almost never really. Like it becomes pretty clear that like the person who's the main character is a robot. <laughs> Like oh, yeah. about a third of the way through the book. <laughs> oh yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I'll say I'll say this this version. Now we watch we both watched the final cut, right? Yeah, I watched the final cut. Okay, we watched the final cut. The reason this works is because of the way they do that much better in this version. I would argue that it makes it worse. No, I disagree. I think if they're gonna give a definitive answer as opposed to the more bullshitty thing that the other cuts do, I think this is the way to do it. I think the point of this movie, I think the much more eloquent point of this movie, is how we as people get turned against other people and how discrimination works. Him as a cop, he is essentially a, and I'm, I'm going to say this, he's a class trainer, in that he is made to look at other people like himself as inherently evil and as inherently wrong. And by the end of the movie, he has realized that that isn't the case. These are humanoids who are slaves on another colony, and he has sympathy for them and is beginning to realize, oh, shit, I'm one of them. I, too, am like them. I have fake memories. I've been killing my own kind. I think that's a very powerful message because you have Emma Walsh's character who, in the middle of the movie, he, like, keeps calling them skin jobs. Like, he is using language that dehumanizes Mm -hmm. them to the person who has to kill them. Who is also a skin job. Who is also a skin job. I think in one other cut, there's a narration that says that he, in the old days, would have used, and I think it says the N-word, to call certain people that. And so, like, it kind of hammers home that Emma Walsh is prejudiced against Oh, to be sure. Oh, to be sure. They're all prejudiced against robots. Robots are there to serve and not speak. Like, and unfortunately, by the way, we need to talk about who all this is put on. Harrison Ford plays Decker. He's good in this. He's it's a really good, good Harrison in this. Ford role. It, 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 he doesn't feel like he's sleepwalking his way through it. Like, no, he's he's awake. He's engaged with the material. It's you know, it's it's a good I'll, Harrison Ford. I'll say this too: we get Harrison Ford yelling from pain. One of the my favorite things in a movie. My favorite thing about Harrison Ford is he's clearly stoned in every movie he's ever been in. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's what makes a, great, a good Harrison Ford performance is when he's stoned and engaged. And there's uh-huh. Harrison Ford performances where he is stoned and not engaged. Yeah, that's very, very true. He is tasked by M.M. at Walsh's character to hunt down four... I'm going to call them replicants, I guess, is the best way to say it. You have Roy Batty. You in Texas, huh? design your eyes. Sure. If only you could see what I've seen with your eyes. Pris. We scared each other pretty good, didn't we? We sure did. <laughs> I'm hungry, Jaya. I got stuff inside. You want to come in? I was hoping you'd say that. Leon. Wake up. Time to die. And you have Zahora. So if somebody does try and exploit me, who do I go to about it? Me. You're a dedicated man. All played by Rutger Hauer, Daryl Hannah, Ryan James, and Joanna Cassidy. And man, four really good portrayals of like robots, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is like they aren't the robots that you typically assume you would see in media. They're like androids. They're you know, they have feelings, they have emotions. They're meant to essentially mimic humans. What they do, and I think this is really interesting, is that they give them fake memories so that they don't, sometimes don't, well, I guess, they do that to some of them. They give them fake memories so they don't realize they're not 
robots, but they also have a short lifespan. They only have, they only get to live four years because after about four years, they become attached to, you know, being alive <laughs> and like their emotions become, and their thoughts kind of become sentient. Yeah, that's very, very true. Kind of, which is kind of cool. I think it's it a cool, cool idea. You know, that Philip K. Dick guy, you know, come up with some cool ideas. That's fair. And he did, and he did. Like, I know everyone, everyone loves Philip K. Dick. I mean, everyone loves Minority Report. I mean, I everyone loves that is a recall. Fun, that, those are fun movies, to be sure. Everyone Motherfucker has a good track record for adaptations of movies that I like. Yeah. There's some bad ones in there. Oh, I'm sure there is. I think the only other three people we have to talk about is Joe Turkle as Dr. Eldon Tyrell. That's the motherfucker from The Shining. It is the motherfucker from The Shining. We have to talk about William Sanderson as J.F. Sebastian, the saddest character in the in that. It's a very sad. It's a very sad character. And Sean Young as Rachel, which, man, like I said, it's a great noir movie. It has a femme fatale in Daryl Hannah, and it has just that big eyed brunette in Sean Young. She's lovely in this. I think this is her best performance. Probably. I don't know. Ace Ventura um, is very close. Uh, no way, baby. Dune. Oh, that's right. She is in Dune, isn't she? Yeah. It's also in No Way Out. I've never seen No Way Out. That's a, uh, that's a Tony Scott, right? No, no, it's Ron- Roger Donaldson. I'm thinking of yeah. Revenge. It's like, it's like, oh, that's the Kevin Costner way out? Yeah. Yeah, it's still pretty good. <laughs> what no way out were you thinking of? Like a 2001 paper? No, I'm, I was like, wow, she's fucking old. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah, it's it's good. It's the uh, no way out's good. Sean Young, it was great. And Dune's also good. I don't yeah, know. She's in Stripes. Good. Stripes is a weird I mean, movie. I mean, nothing happens at, like 10 minutes before Stripes ends. Stripes yeah, last you can't 30 tell me, minutes. You can't tell me the last 30 minutes of that movie. Like, nothing happens. It is literally the comedy version of Full Metal Jacket. It's crazy that the, the, we'll fucking get the Full Metal Jacket, goddammit. By the way, you want to talk about mistreating women in a Stanley Kubrick movie? Boom, bam! Yes, I agree. But also, that movie is structured the way it's structured for a very specific reason, and I like the reason. Okay. And I like that movie. I'm glad you do. I like Full Metal Jacket, too. I just like a certain part of it better than a second part of it. I was going to say, it's crazy that the last reel of Stripes was just blank, but that's just how it goes. Yeah, it's it's a very odd choice. Yeah, they just, they just sent out a, just an empty reel of film. The Doctor is the guy who created all of them. And I mean, the premise of the movie is Roy Batty, who is played by, I mean, I'll say it, it is the fucking performance of a lifetime in Rucker Hauer. <laughs> I think you're miscounting, what's a mediocre movie he's been in? Give me a second. I think you're discounting flesh and blood. So happy you got your little jab in. Yeah, everyone knows what flesh and blood is, right? It's the you know, Paul Verhoeven no, movie no, that sucks. No. This is the best performance Rucker Hauer has ever given. Fuck, is he in Johnny Mnemonic? I don't He's know. He's in Johnny Is he? We lost him. Ash is trying to answer me. Oh, that's right. He's, in the, he's the fucking hitcher. He is. Oh, he is the hitcher. I could be wrong. I think it's him. I am wrong. Okay. If someone else, glad I got that out of the way. Glad I'm just out here just derailing podcasts. Who is that guy in Johnny Mind? Nobody knows. 
By the way, Rutger Hauer, the largest head I've ever seen. He he's got a big head. He's got a he's got a big body, and he's great in this movie. I think he's very intimidating. I would not like to be in a dark alley with Rutger Howard. I would. Oh um, well, I guess with Rutger Howard at this point, R.I.P. Yeah, I mean, and he is just cut like. So the premise of the movie is like he's hunting down all these people, and it starts with Zahora, who is just this exotic dancer with a fake snake, and. Man, she beats the piss out of him. Harrison Ford is just a punching bag this whole movie. It's a good noir protagonist because yeah, know, it is. they just got to be down on their luck. They just kind of get beat up a lot. It's great. Yeah, but it's their brains that save them. Sometimes. Also, this movie uh, predicted something. Guns are cooler in the future. I mean, are guns cooler? I mean, like, not, you know what I mean. Like, it's not cool to shoot people with guns. I'm not saying that. But that is the coolest movie gun of all time. That gun? Yeah. Oh, it's fucking dope. It's pretty cool. Yeah, Zahora, I think, is the, the part of the movie that I remember the least. Yeah, it's fair. Well, that's why <laughs> if that makes sense. I, I was just like, oh, wait, there's like a whole other person. Like, there's a whole other android <laughs> before the rest of the movie happens. And for some reason, I'm just like, I remember very specifically the, like, opening shot. I remember very specifically, like, the noodle scene. And then, like, there's, like, a whole scene where he's, like, trying to call Rachel at, like, a club. And then, like, he's drunk, kills too. the first android. And he gets drunk. And he's drinking, like, a really weird, like, squash worms or something. That's bizarre. It looks like a beer gorita. The cup does, at least. Yeah. And, like, I think that's the part of the movie i just sort of don't remember when i think about it like i just never think about zahora or like the exotic dancing stuff she does have a beautiful death where she gets shot and runs through 17 panes of glass it's very true it's comical almost i'll say this too i do not remember like there is a moment in this movie that is not supposed to be funny but it actually is too when he finishes beating Zahora and you're like, okay, it's fucking over now. Like he can get a little rest before the next one. Leon just shows up and starts beating the absolute fuck out of him. It's great. <laughs> When's my it's, birthday? It's, it's <laughs> like he knocks the gun away. It, it feels like you could beat Leon by like get, telling him like a bunch of questions that have like conflicting answers. <laughs> I mean, he's the muscle. Think about it. He's the guy who's supposed to be a mover, right? Like, he's supposed to... He's, like, a on a colony. He's supposed to, like, dig ditches, essentially. So they didn't program him to have a, a very big brain. If he's supposed to be that, why give him consciousness? Why not just make him a thing with dig ditches? Time to wake up. Time to die. <laughs> I'll say it, too. They all get a really good moment. Like, Zahora's where she's walking around, like, stripping and, like... Like, she knows exactly what's going on, too. Zahora is trying to, you know, distract him, essentially. Oh, no, ma'am, not me. By the way, Harrison Ford pretending to be a guy from the, like, the, what is it? Not the, is it the union? Like, the union of performers? Yeah. I want to make sure you're not being exploited. Like, he does a voice. It's actually pretty funny. It's a funny voice. It's a, it's a good voice. And that moves us on. I mean, I mean, and they're separated. Those two are only ever really together, but... We then see 
Roy Batty and Pris, and Roy Batty has bigger plans. Roy Batty is trying to make it so that his is it his I like him and Pris like an item. That's a good I- question. But I mean, like, I don't think either of them would ever see themselves as being owned or being with someone because of all the shit they've got. I mean, Pris is probably fucked up more sexually I than anybody. I think they're supposed to be, and this is my reading of the film, Pris and Batty are supposed to be a foil for Rick and Rachel. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, you know what? They are like, yeah, you know what? That's. Actually- I think they're supposed to also be in love, but they kind of realize that they only have like a year left. And so they're trying to extend their lives, essentially. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's actually very true. Because, yeah, at the same time he's having this thing. It's a fucking brilliant noir, dude. you got to give it credit for how it follows the noir structure. I mean, it's well put together. Like, yeah. I think the story is interesting. I think, I don't know if, I, rem- I don't remember if when we were talking about Alien, if I, if I said my point out loud about that movie which is it's a movie that i find very interesting to talk about and its ideas i think are very interesting from like a perspective of like how it sort of pinpoints like the male fear essentially and like how that movie exploits it i find this movie to be very interesting to think and talk about but i find it interminable to watch (laughs) like i just like am so bored by it with that being said i do like i said i do really love talking about it i love the world i don't love some of the racism in the movie but you know i think it's it's, pointing it out it's not being like i know i think it's pointed like i think i think the movie kind of knows what it's doing i mean it's also too just it works dude like it starts like that version of sci-fi yeah first 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 movie version for sure no other movie looked and did like kind of what that movie did until blade runner yeah when i say william gibson did start cyberpunk mm-hmm. he kind of did i mean he did he was very influenced by blade runner because this comes out in what 82 mm-hmm. but i think he's also more influenced by philip k dick because philip k dick's like a big imprint on cyberpunk oh yeah and i'm saying philip k dick also started this too but this is the first movie that truly captured like oh shit like sci-fi can be fucking cool and like cool in a way where like you don't even need to describe it. It's just it can be fucking cool. Yeah. yeah, I think the sci-fi right before this was like a riff on Flash Gordon. Yeah, which is emphatically. I mean, it's fun. It's, I like watching it, but it's not cool. I think maybe the word I would use is gritty. Mm-hmm. And I would say that Star Wars kind of did that a little bit. Like the world of Star Wars is very lived in, which is something that you didn't see in in sci-fi and i think blade runner takes it to like its natural conclusion which is like on the ground earth dwelling stuff like there's interesting things with the like set design and the type of people who are like walking around because you begin to realize that like there's an off-world colony and that only people who could afford to get off world got off world and so that left like essentially this like city that has been not taken over, but, like, the people who live there aren't who you would, at the time of the 80s, see in a Los Angeles setting. And so you have, like, a lot of South Asian characters and a lot of South Asian buildings and storefronts and letterings, and you have a lot of kanji and a lot of, you know, katakana and hiragana and stuff like that in the world. And I think 
that that is a very cool and very pointed thing about where bigotry kind of comes from. And it comes from this idea of being replaced by other races, by a different sex, by androids in this movie. And I think the movie is attempting to explore that. Is this supposed to point out whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian? And, like, there's that. Like, that's a really weird line from Rachel. <laughs> no, I think that's um, very, very pointed. Like, And, yeah, I think the movie kind of knows what it's doing. Like, uh, you know, it comes from a book that knew what it's doing. And I like it. I Like I said, I think it's fun to think about and fun to talk about and fun to examine the world that it takes place in. I also kind of just am very bored by the movie. <laughs> Well, and I think it's boring up to a point. But however, when he shows up at JF's house and Pris is there, that's where the movie truly kicks off to another level, in my opinion. Yeah, Daryl Hannah plays Pris, who's, I think they call him a pleasure model robot. Yup, <laughs> yup. Which is, again, I'm just like, do you really have to make them sentient? <laughs> yeah, like, seriously, like, do you know how many times, like, she's probably been mounted and just been like, no, I don't want any of this, I guess, like, but... Like, do they? You have to give them like consciousness. Like, yeah, why? seriously. Like, like just what are just you doing? Make it, make it. Dudes are not that complicated. Make it, whoop it up, and make noises like it sounds like you're rocking her world. That's all you need. And honestly. we also keep calling it it. It's it, it's an android. It's it's a them. It's a they. It's a she. You know, like yeah, it's true. It's not an no, it. no, no, a, no, no, no. No, no. We're calling it. We're calling the version that doesn't have consciousness in it. Yeah. Because there's nothing there. Her is a robot, and her is a woman, and it's Daryl Hannah. And she's amazing in this performance. Like, this is the most non-Daryl Hannah performance I've ever seen. Yeah, it's just, like, her movements are very measured and very interesting. And she's, like, doesn't say a lot, if I remember correctly. By the way, if you ever wanted to prove he's also a robot, when she tries to turn his head around, like, you're like, well, he's obviously a robot. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. It's... A very interesting character because it seems like she's wearing like a mesh bodysuit. And I'm just like, why? Probably what she's comfortable in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe that's just how she likes to see her body. Uh, and I'm just like, okay. And she's also, I to be guess. fair too, her sexuality is her greatest weapon outside of the fact that she's incredibly strong. I would say that Zora and Pris both have like you're like, wow, they really just hit the section. They just turned, they just hit that crank and just turned it all the way up to 10. Yep. And he gets the best of her barely and fucking shoots her. Her death is upsetting. I will say that when Rick retires the androids, quote unquote, retired, again, another form of dehumanization. Yep. That it's, he, it's always just barely. <laughs> oh yeah. No, no. Like you said, he's the punching bag. He barely gets them because he kind of outwits them to a certain extent. All except for the last one. And if I remember correctly, Pris in the book is also it's a very sad death. Oh, it's sad to hear, too. Like, her just, like, essentially, like, going from this conscious thing that was, like, in love with Roy to, like, just this, like, convulsing creature because it's, like, something short-circuited in it. Mm -hmm. Like, and it's the same thing of, like, one of us hit our head and was just, like, convulsing on the ground. It's the same concept. It's just, it's, like... Yeah, it's upsetting. Yeah. Very and I'll say this, Roy comes home and Roy is not pleased that this happened. Roy is big mad. And uh, he takes it out on Deckard. And I'll say this, fair. 
It should be pointed out that Roy fits. Uh, Philip K. Dick regarded him as the perfect uh, baby, cold, Aryan, flawless. And I think it's a comment on the idea of what this particular society this movie takes place in, how they would perceive, like, the perfect specimen. And, yeah, it would be, like, a blonde white guy who's very muscular. And I think it also is kind of interesting that, like, in a world where, like, a lot of the people on the ground aren't white, all of the robots are. And I'm not saying that that's an intentional choice. I'm just saying I think that that's what the manufacturer thinks, perceives the best humans to look like. Yeah, you're not wrong. It's <sighs> it's kind of like how facial recognitioning only works for white people because the only people who work in tech are white people. And I would say to you on that, you've made me think about something. Yeah. See, I'm not coming at this movie, Ben. No, you're really not. You're really not. You're just coming at everything else. I'm trying. Yeah. Roy Batty is not pleased. And I'll say this kind of goes full animal. He does. Yeah. They. Be- I think they all sort of become very instinctual and animalistic when they're faced with imminent mortality. Yeah. You feel bad for all of them. You do. And like, but that's the weird thing about the ending, too, is like, because I mean, Roy's got him fucking dead to rights. I mean, can we say it too? Why has the gif of him putting his head through the wall not become more famous? I don't know. It's a great gif, and people should use it more often. The funniest moment in the movie. He puts his head through that wall, right? Yeah. And he goes, you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to get it up. He then pulls his head out of the wall, takes one step to the left, and there's a door there. (laughs) Like, why did you do that? Like... Look, he's a very powerful man. He's so, like, shutting why down he? too, which is great. Yeah. And one of the most memorable things about this movie is the Tears in the Rain speech, which was improvised by Rutger Howard. And we will now take a brief moment to listen to that speech right here. I've seen things. You people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. That's that's just me applauding the speech. It's a good speech. It's an incredible fucking speech. Like, this is one of my favorite moments in a movie. Like, it's a great speech. And he just, he like apparently wrote it before set and just was like, I'm going to do this. And like, Ridley Scott was like, You're just supposed to die. He was like, I got a thing. (laughs) Let me try a thing. And he did it. And he was like, You just got Howard and he just walks out of the room. (laughs) 
Rucker Howard gets up and they go, dude, Rucker, that was amazing. He goes, I know, Ridley, and that's why you're fucking fired. And he goes, what? He goes, I'm just kidding. I don't have that power. JK. Yeah, it's a great speech. And then you would think, movie end, right? No. Movie continued to go. One of my favorite lines from Andrew J. Mulvils, you've done a man's work. Which is actually fucking racist now that I think about it. Yeah, it's Andrew. Holy shit, this movie just blew my mind. Yeah. And War James almost is essentially like, you're an android, bro. It's too bad you won't live. But then again, who does? This is why I also think I dislike Blade Runner 2049 even more than Blade Runner. What? I was like, how did you make it worse and more boring? You put Ryan Gosling in it. But, but like, it just also makes... I don't know. It just totally disregards like what is, I think, interesting about the fucking first movie. In favor of, like, what if androids could fall in love and have a child? I'm like, okay, I guess. No, I like parts of Blade Runner 2049. It's the first movie in a while that I was like, oh, Jared Leto. <laughs> what was funny about that movie is the people behind us were very drunk and annoying for, like, the first third of that movie. And then they got kicked out for some reason. I'm not sure why. I think <laughs> one of them... You? No, no. I think one of them went to go to the bathroom and like pissed off like a uh, security guard or something, and they he got kicked out, and so they all left. And my friend reached behind us and grabbed their popcorn and started eating it. And I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Raph. He gets home. By the way, Edward James almost his character makes little stick figures of stuff. Origami. Origami, yes, and but he also makes one out of like little uh, matches too. At one point. That's true. And has an erection for some reason. It's a unicorn because Deckard sees a unicorn. No, 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 no. The one he makes with the matches has an erection is what oh, I'm saying. Oh, really? That's fucking weird. Anyway. It's funny as fuck because if you don't look, you don't see it. Yeah, he gets home and the one that he has is a unicorn and Deckard had a dream about a unicorn. Because there's th- this protocol when it's like, an, like a, a special type of android that isn't supposed to know it's an android. They make it so they have false memories, and one of the memories is a recurring dream of a unicorn. Allegedly, I don't know. Deckard may not be, may just be a human who's got a weird dream. Oh, I think Deckard's a robot. Deckard's a fucking robot. Come on. Yeah, of course. (laughs) I like the fact that there's like no real ambiguity. Like, I think the movie would work better if there isn't ambiguity, but that's just me. No, I agree. I I think it does work better in ambiguity, and I think it does have a lot more to say. If you kind of are left up in the air, is like, is Deckard a robot? Who's to say? In the theatrical cut, it's very much he isn't a robot, right? I believe so. There's like a whole final narration that's like, and they live happily ever after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's he's a robot. This didn't really get any love awards wise, did it? It didn't get in love when it came out, I think. I think it's, yeah. it was like a kind of a flop. It's too ahead of its time, I think. It also had a terrible theatrical cut. Yeah, it did. It's really The theatrical bad. cut is fine, I think. I think there's even even worse cut that's like even like 80 minutes or something like that. Like it's uh, it's crazy that this movie has what like 15 different <laughs> cuts of the film. Something like that. It, it's got several, and I'll say that he is the master of director's cuts. Well, the thing is, is there's a director's cut, and then there's the final cut. That's true. There's two different... I think the original one I saw was the director's cut. Hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm going to read a big, long thing about the different versions, because 
I remember there's like the original release, which is like 117 minutes, and then there's like the home video release, which is like 80. It's like really weird. It's kind of it's it's bad. Anyway, it's bad. Yeah. So, what would you pair this with? Oh, Blade Runner. I'd pair it with Johnny Mnemonic, baby. That <laughs> no. was the plan all along. <laughs> Um, I would pair it with no, no, no. You already did. Oh, I did it. I got it. Woo! I win. No, I'm, I, I have not seen Johnny Mnemonic yet, but fuck you. That that movie is not going to be watched by next week it's on Prime, right? It's on Hulu, I believe. Oh, it's on Hulu. That's right. Yeah. Fucking watching the shit out of Johnny Mnemonic tonight. What do you give this? I think I, I think I kind of bumped it up talking about it. I think watching it, it's a three. I think talking about it, it's like a four star movie. Okay, fair. I give this four and a half, actually. I was, I, it's not Stanley Kubrick's 2001, I'm sorry, but like, this is one of my favorite Ridley Scott movies, and I know you're very much a staunch, not Ridley Scott guy. I think it would be a better movie if it wasn't directed by Ridley Scott, but it's, it's, it's good. It's got a lot of interesting ideas. I think it's a movie that people should see. I also think it has a lot of, it's a fun movie to talk about. I'll say it like yeah, that. it is. As we come out of the sci-fi and we're back into the present, what would you? And neither of these movies actually take place in the pre or in the future. Both these movies are in the past by now. Yes, but I ask you the question of what are we doing next week? Next week, you have tasked me with ghost movies. Am I right? Ooh. Ghost movie, and I am teeing up for the first one, a George C. Scott film called The Changeling. You ever seen The Changeling? I've never seen The Changeling. Wait, no, wait, maybe I have. There's a red ball, right? There's a red ball in it. One of the best, best scares in the whole movie. Okay, I think I've seen parts of The Changeling, but it's been years. I forgot George C. Scott's in it, too. Patton is going to fight ghosts? Yeah. Is that and the then, premise of this movie? Pretty much. And then... <laughs> You're like, if it sells it to you, sure. If that's what you want to see, that's, that's what it you, is. That's you at 9.55 on a Friday <laughs> at the video store with someone. They're like, so this movie, like, Patton fights ghosts. You're like, yeah, if that gets you out of here in the next five minutes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Go, you ahead, got it, sell me. Go ahead and 9.55 sell me the next movie, too. <laughs> We're going to go to the to the land of the scariest ghost stories, in my opinion. And that is Japan. And we're going to take a look at a found footage horror movie. I, for some reason, just love found... Anyway, um, it's a movie that was almost on my 2000s horror list, but didn't quite make it because I didn't have time to get it over to Ben, even though it's on Shutter, I just, I like watched it like literally the night before we were supposed to start recording. And I was like, I don't know if Ben's going to want to be able to watch this right now. And it's Nori, the curse. And yeah, it's a paranormal movie about a paranormal hunter who's found footage and it's very good. And hey, it's just, let yes. Me ask you, let me ask you something about it. Where would you say it falls in terms of like scary to me very so if so very to you so if someone were to not enjoy horror movies let's just say a young lady i'm seeing doesn't want to watch horror movies where would it fall for her so okay so this movie i would say this is a hard sell for someone who doesn't like horror movies it's very scary to my girlfriend who grew up in a house where, like, NHK and stuff was on all the time because it, it repurposes a lot of, like, NHK-type footage. Mm. So 
I would say, to me, it's very scary. I would say if someone doesn't like horror, I would probably not show them this movie. <laughs> hey, Brianna, um, we have a movie for next week to watch. It's called Nori, <laughs> Nori the Curse. It's apparently a laugh a riot, laugh minute comedy. It's a, it's, yeah. Tyler, by the way, this is Brianna. Hi. Hi. <laughs> She's just hanging out in the room while I finish up. So, yeah, she doesn't like horror, huh? Yeah, I mean, I mean, comedy. So maybe this will yeah, change your mind. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah Nori definitely, the Curse. Definitely, yeah, yeah, definitely. Sounds like it's the movie The Pest with John Leguizamo, but you know, Japanese. Nope. No? <laughs> I'm way off on that one. Huh? <laughs> I would say it's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. So wow. it, it like shook me to the bone. I'm watching this in the middle of the daytime. <laughs> Okay, yeah. It's like up there with like Mungo, with like a movie I just like think about Fuck a lot. Fuck me, really? Yeah. Wow. Okay, so next week, The Changeling, George C. Scott, Batten versus Ghosts, and Nori, <laughs> a laugh-a-minute comedy, The Curse. I Nori, feel like curse. I oversold it. I'm sorry. I hope no, I didn't No, no, dude, you're, you. you're usually not wrong. Like, I remember when you told me Raw was upsetting, and I was like, fuck, does he know about upsetting? And I remember putting on Raw, and I'm like, well, this is fucking upsetting. Like... How am I supposed to know that it was going to be this upsetting? Wow, that was a rough watch. Oh, guess what? She couldn't get to 100 movies in my collection. She's like, can you suggest anything? I'm like, you ever seen Trouble Every Day? And she's like, no, what's that? I'm like, okay, enjoy. <laughs> oh, no, she loves horror movies. Stephanie's a big oh, okay. horror movie fan. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a bunch that I could suggest of horror movies. Oh, yeah. No, but she was like, no, what's that? I'm like, I'm like, horror movie. And she goes, I don't really have a lot of horror because I've seen a lot of horror. I'm like, yeah. And I said, then you haven't seen this. If you want to follow all of the antics and, you know, see what movies are scary that we talk about and all that good stuff, you can, of course, follow us at TWGTF Pod on Twitter. You can follow me at ET Critic for the Empty Theater Critic on Twitter, where I'm reviewing stuff. Come see what I talked about this week. A lot of movies made the list. I'm going to be sending you an updated top 10 list in a bit. Woo! Yeah. And, uh, and Tyler, any way they can follow you? Uh, they can follow me to a noodle shop on the corner of No and Don't. And for TWGTF, two white guys talking film, I'm, of course, your host, Ben. And I'm an android. And remember, guys, you don't seem like you're sure about that. And I'm an android. <laughs> Better. And remember, guys, if you see someone coming into our store and he's carrying a tortoise and he flips it over, well, what do you think about that, Tyler, if you had to flip over a tortoise? You're in a desert, walking along the sand, when all of a sudden you look down. What one? What? What desert? Doesn't make a difference what desert. Just two white guys talking film.
going? Out to a movie. That okay with you? Well, good for your friend Raph. I hope him, Mikey, Don, and Leo all, all have a good time. He is the one that brought nachos to the witch. It's still my favorite. It's my favorite movie story of all time. <laughs> Hold on. You're just going to do the sound of the chips. We're now just going to do my favorite moment in The Witch. What have we come out into this woods to see? What have we... <laughs> <laughs> we went into the movie theater with nachos. And we, he left with a mostly full plate of nachos. The cheese is cold. I want my It's just like, he was just like, I wasn't expecting to be like one of those types of horror movies. And I was like, I, I told you what type of movie it was. It's my favorite moment. <laughs>